And welcome to the Two Solitudes podcast here in sunny but cold Toronto, because we always have to give you the weather, Kevin. How's the weather in Montreal? Uh, there's a buzz about the weather because it's really cold, but there's uh, not really a buzz about anything else soccer-related in Montreal lately, Dwayne, and uh, the, the owner really doesn't like it. Yeah, well, it's tough. You got that CCL game coming up. Uh, how are the tickets sales coming? Weekly about that, I guess. Between about 17000 right now, which is a little bit disappointing, to be honest, but uh, when you turn, when you, you get your supporters and your fans angry... It takes more than just promises and talk to get them back. It needs a little action. And they need to see something good on the field before the masses come back. And I think that's a big reason why there was a big controversy. But let's, you're right, there's a big game coming, and let's focus on that now. Yeah, and they're playing Cruz Azul under-20s today. Uh, if you want to follow it on Twitter today, being Tuesday. I'm going to take uh, the show today. I was going to say we're going to take a quick break, but I'll, I'll set the show up first. Jonathan Tannewall is going to join us. Uh, he's been a... Uh, a guy that's been on my previous podcast before, a lot of Kevin's podcasts, but the first time on the two solitudes, he's going to talk about the CP, the CBA, the uh, USSF backing uh, Prince Ali in the uh, battle for FIFA presidency and a little bit of the, the U.S. women. Uh, we're going to talk some MLS news, Michael Bradley, Captain Crap in Toronto. I'm sick of talking about that already, and I haven't even talked about it yet. Uh, Dina Telly, the rumor there. Kevin's going to talk about a show he did on Off the Woodworks, and we're going to talk about Darren Maddox and Robert Earnshaw and whether it's time to let go of the Jamaican which is a topic that we talked about a lot in the past. Um, before we get it going, I want to explain our bumpers today. Kevin, I, uh, I like many people, watch the Grammys on the weekend. Uh, I like the snark about, uh, about the award shows. Um, I like music. I like watching the Grammys, even though it, they sometimes make fun of them. So we wanted to set up, in honor of the big night's biggest star, we're going to do all of our bumpers in honor of Sam Smith today. Right, Kevin? Yeah, so only Tom Petty is going to play today on Two Saltos Podcast. Only Tom Petty. And welcome back to Two Saltitudes Podcast. Jonathan Tannenbald uh, on the line from Philly.com. Jonathan's a long-time listener, first-time uh, caller, I believe. Aren't you, Jonathan? To this show. Yes. All right. Well, thank <laughs> Other shows in the past, I think. We do, we do thank you for your time today. We actually tried to get you on Five Rings, uh, but the, you were uh, covered a basketball game. And so it's one year anniversary of Five Rings this week, by the way, or Five Rings well, congr- this week. Congratula- I do still listen to that one, too. Congratulations. Thank All right. Much. Thank you. Um, we thought we'd have you on to talk a bit about the CBA, um, maybe some FIFA election stuff, and uh, the U.S. women if we had time. So we'll start with the CBA, Jonathan. Simple first question. Are they going to strike? That's a great one. <laughs> you know, right now it wouldn't surprise me. I'm not going to sit here and say yes or no because I really have no idea. Um, I keep sitting here waiting for um, you know, some kind of big movement in one direction or the other. And it just doesn't happen, whether it's on free agency, whether it's on salaries, minimum wages, salary caps, designated player slots, all these different things. I, I applaud the, the players' union for having the strength that they do to dig their heels in. Uh, I think the biggest question that I have right now is whether at some point a mediator will be brought into the room because as soon as a mediator is brought in, you start the clock of the season starting. And, and of course, last time, for those that remember, it, it did take the mediation to, to get the job done. I think it was five days before the yeah. season of memory serves. It, and Don Garber was, was in Orlando recently. was quoted as saying that the league is interested in having a mediator, which is fine. The players' union may well be interested in it too, but there was an erroneous report on that same day that 
there was already a mediator in the room. The reason why that matters is if they were going to mediation a month out, then I would think the season would start on time. It's a long time still left to go on a lot of these things, and I think that we will start to see some movement at some point. Um, I would I would note the following as a potential uh, target window, as it were, for when a strike might happen. I'd love to get your guys' opinions on this, too. The first game of the MLS regular season is on Friday, March 6th. It's been publicly stated by people with Montreal and with DC United and elsewhere they want to play those CONCACAF Champions League games in the days prior. So I would imagine that at some point between 10 o'clock or so Eastern time on Wednesday, March 4th, after DC United's Champions League game ends, and whenever on Thursday the Chicago Fire would be getting on the plane to go out to L.A. for the first game of the season, that I think is when we would see the trigger get pulled. Yeah, that sounds right. I've heard that the uh, there's a sort of an unwritten rule that they're not going to touch the Concacaf games. That they're going to allow those to continue and then uh, you know sort of attack the first of the season. I guess, Jonathan, my question back to you, and I'll let Kevin weigh in uh, real quick before we get to you is is do you do you think that the the league is going to to cave a little bit on the free agency, or is this the hill they'll die on, so to speak? I think it's going to be Dwayne the Hill they die on because it's really the one point that the players have to gain. It's the one big issue that the players are not behind from the other league, but yeah, they don't have the power of the free agency that the other player have. And a question I can ask you, Jonathan, do you think that point of the free agency is going to be the changing point or is there maybe another reason that would push the players to cave in or to uh, maybe dig their heels a little deeper. Well, let me say this first of all. You talk about the free agency being the number one thing. It is in the player's mind, but that doesn't mean it, it necessarily is objectively. You have the minimum. There's guys in this league who make $36,000 U.S. a year. That's inexcusable, flat out inexcusable. You cannot afford to live in New York or San Francisco or I would imagine Toronto or Vancouver or plenty of other places on that salary um, and make a decent living at it. Um, you've got the salary cap, you've got the number of roster slots on a team, you've got how the relationship between MLS and USL Pro is going to work. By the way, if MLS does give on these other sort of other things, I wouldn't be surprised if it tries to cut the number of roster slots uh, because the number of roster slots, if that, incre- if that stays high, that is a benefit to the union because the union has more members. So here's the big question that I have. What would free agency in Major League Soccer look like? To me... It can be collectively bargained within the single entity structure, and that is something that I know that the players' union believes too. All you have to do is codify the idea that Major League Soccer cannot interfere in a transaction conducted by a club. It cannot block anything. It has to let any transaction, good or bad, Mm -hmm. go through. It just has to be the clearinghouse, not the blocker. And Dwayne, I'm sure this is stirring plenty of (laughs) memories for you. As well it should, because part of the deal here is how much latitude should MLS clubs have to make a bad decision, not a good decision. Yeah, absolutely. If we're looking at Jonathan, there's a big goal of 2022 being one of the top leagues in the world. This CBA is really important. and Absolutely. Because it's maybe the one before the one that brings you, uh, well, the MLS to 2022. 
what could be in that CBA? What could Don Garber or the Players Union or any side of that negotiation could put in that CBA that would help Major League Soccer to be one of the top leagues in 2022? Uh, oh, 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 oh. I got a long list of things for that. Um, let me say this quickly, though, before I do, about the dying on the hill. It doesn't have to be because what this free agency ought to come with, and I think that a lot of very sensible people can agree on this, is you shouldn't just have immediately pure free agency after you sign your first contract. If you're a guy who's only been in the league for a year or two, if you want to have a service time provision, number of games played, number of years in the league, whatever, I think a lot of people would be okay with that, certainly within the outside the bargain. And I suspect that the players' union, you can, because once you, once, if MLS gets to the point of saying, we'll give you free agency with a service time provision, then you start negotiating that number up and down. And then you start making some real progress. What do you guys think of that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that ultimately is, uh, is where they'll end up. I do think that uh, when all is said and done, there will be some form of freer movement uh, for players that have hit a certain threshold. I, I suspect that the league uh, wants to put that around the decade mark and the players would rather see it closer to five years and, and maybe they'll, they'll cut the middle and put it around seven or so, which is uh, not a lot of movement, I don't think, and I don't think it's going to inflate the salaries that much. But, but over but, time, you bargain that number down. Exactly. Like the NHL has done over the years. And, right. and you play with the number, and, and I think the NHL model uh, is kind of where they'll go. Um, the, the, to answer Kevin's question about other matters, what I would like to see, what a lot of people would like to see, although I'm not so sure that this is a big priority for the players' union, I'd like to see all these transparency measures in the CB, bargained into the CBA and codified. Get rid of these allocation rules for the Americans coming into Major League Soccer. Get rid of the right of first refusal for players going out of the league so that clubs can hold on to their rights in perpetuity. That is absurd. Mm -hmm. And get rid of, as gentlemen, you and I found out this week, uh, get rid of a club's ability to have perpetual right of first refusal on a player coming into Major League Soccer who has a discovery claim on a team's discovery list. The team makes a contract offer. The player rejects it and... The club then has right of – because the club made a bona fide contract offer, that club has right of first refusal on that player coming into the league for the rest of time. That is absurd. Well, absolutely. Jonathan, t take a quick moment just to for those that aren't aware of it to, to explain that situation which directly affected uh, uh, the, the union. I would imagine that a portion of your audience is aware of it, although I don't know how many listeners in Vancouver you have. <laughs> <laughs> well, since last week, a little less than usually. Uh, but <laughs> and the player is from Toronto, I might also add. Yes. His name is Stephen Vittoria. He is a 28-year-old, six-foot-five central defender, who's going to be starting for the union on opening day. I would imagine. Uh, he grew up in Toronto. He moved to Portugal as a teenager. He's been playing in the Portuguese league ever since. The union, uh, once they got, once they loaned Carlos Valdez out to Uruguay, they wanted to bring Vitoria in as a replacement. They couldn't pull the trigger until Valdez was gone. Now that he was, they pulled the trigger, only to find out after their initial press release had gone out that in order to pull the trigger, they had to pay the Vancouver Whitecaps a sum of allocation money, which of course is not disclosed. By the way, let's get that into the CBA too. We got to disclose all these sums of mm -hmm. cash moving around. And the reason why the union had to pay the Whitecaps this ransom for the right to get Vittorio on loan is because 
the Whitecaps had Vittoria on their discovery list in 2014. They tried to sign him. They made what MLS headquarters considered to be a bona fide offer. Vittoria refused it because he didn't want to play there. And because Vancouver had made the offer, they kept his MLS rights in perpetuity. It's it's absolutely absurd, no no doubt. Uh, Victoria, for those who aren't aware, is also one of uh, one of the the many who have um, turned their back or uh, made the the right decision for their career on the Canadian a, national a team. A Canada a Canada native who played in for another country in the FIFA U twenty championships in two thousand seven on Canadian soil. Yes. Ouch! Ouch! And absolutely, and he has a. And there has been some talk of him following the uh, the change of a. Uh, of uh, nationality for uh, one time, uh, but uh, that that hasn't really gone any far. So uh, we'll we'll leave that well enough alone. Um, Jonathan, I'll end with this. There are a lot of um, if you look at the fan reaction and sort of the people that are outside and believe and love this league. There's a lot of chicken little thinking out there. If there is a work stoppage of some kind, how damaging do you think a work stoppage would be? Say if it lasted a couple weeks. Not very. Okay. Really, not very. Yeah, the players are still signed. They'll still be playing in the end. To be honest, you know, I've heard a lot of people ask, "Well, which has which has side has more pressure on it, the owners or the players?" And while I certainly think that the players who don't make a lot of money have some pressure on them because eventually the you know they're not going to be getting paid, the owners have a lot of at stake in this because of this national TV deal that they've struck um, with ESPN and Fox and Univision that has just these huge games in the opening weekend, especially that Sunday night, New York, Orlando, David Villa, Cacao, you know, name all the big players who are going to be on the field. If that game doesn't happen, it's a big back black eye for the ownership. No, that was going to be one quick question, Jonathan. Do you think the fact that there's two new franchises coming in this season will affect the negotiation? Because the league cannot afford to... They want to play. Exactly. What's going to be... the the People are going to remember the work stoppage and the expansion team forever if they're not playing before a month or two and, in the season, right? And if you're Bell Media in Canada and you've got Vancouver and Toronto on the opening weekend, a very good Vancouver team, and a Toronto team with all these stars, Giovinco possibly will. Giovinco on Toronto's roster. He's going to play at BC Place. I don't know. But because um, of that turf. But you're Bell Media. You're looking at 2016 when your deal's up. You're thinking about how big a check you want to write to help make the Canadian teams what a lot of people down here believe they can be and want them to be. What are you thinking? Absolutely. Uh, there's a lot. That's why you don't hear the, the lockout word talked about. Normally you would at this point because it's no in the way. Owners. No yeah. way. In a normal the, owners have, the owners are in very good shape right now. So the owners probably wouldn't change a thing if they could get away with it. They'll be happy to play with the uh, the non thing. The only thing is, you put the the power back in the player's hand if they don't start the season when, in a strike position. If they're in a strike position, they start the season and they play with the uh, expired CBA, then they could pull in the mid season point. If, if right? you strike, if if they if they strike, it's going to be before the season. And if they do strike, say that LA Galaxy Chicago game gets wiped out, gets rescheduled, somebody folds that night. Yeah, probably. You're right. I don't know who. It, either side, but somebody folds that night. And whether or not, you know, some of the Saturday games get played, the, the, the those Sunday games will get played. All right. Even even if the Red Bulls have to fly to Seattle on Sunday morning, those games will be on. Jonathan, sorry, the revolution, sorry. Jonathan's tight on time. So I want to move from the CBA real briefly and talk a little bit about the FIFA elections. And the news came out this week that uh, the USSF is, is backing uh, Prince Ali bin al-Hussein uh, over Seth Blatter. Just, uh, Jonathan, from your perspective, what will that mean? Will there well, be a follow It will follow-up? be congratulations to the two of you, first of all. 
He's referring to the 2026 World Cup. Yeah, yes. I am, in fact. I'm referring to a column that Grant Wall wrote for Sports Illustrated this week in which the, he, he asserts that the United States may have risked its chances of hosting the 2026 World Cup by backing uh, Prince Ali instead of Sepp Blatter. Now, those of us down here, and Dwayne, you knew this was coming. Mm-hmm. Those of us down here who follow American soccer closely tend to be in favor of them taking ethical stances on things. Yes. So, it has been reported by you and others, but you primarily, that uh, Canada is bidding for the 2026 World Cup and that it is doing so with the financial backing of the U.S. Soccer Federation's biggest commercial rival, which is Traffic Sports. So, I would imagine the traffic sports in FIFA, in fact, we know the traffic sports in FIFA get along pretty well. And uh, this causes me to wonder whether uh, traffic is sitting pretty right now thinking that it's about to have a World Cup in its back pocket. Yeah, that, that certainly is uh, a lot of my thinking has gone that way. And I'm looking, I've always been clear that I'm not making an ethical judgment on this, although I understand the ethical. Uh, I know that, and that's, that's what I was going to ask you about next. Yeah, no, I, I am uncomfortable with it. I, I bluntly, I am. I understand that uh, the, the CSA believes that sort of the the ends justifies the means when it comes to getting the 2026 World Cup and what it would do to move the sport forward. I believe is what they would say. Um, that a few more years of Sepp Blatter would be worth that. But uh, let, me, let me ask you, fellas, this: Would the greater Canadian public be satisfied with the CSA winning the right to host the World Cup? by less than ethical means, if necessary, or would it not get discussed um, and just sort of not get paid attention to? Because there is something of a history of the greater Canadian culture uh, considering self, and sometimes with good reason, to be a little better than the greater American culture. Well, I would go, uh, Jonathan, to answer your question I think it wouldn't really get discussed cause, because in my mind, being from Montreal, what I have in mind is the 76 Olympics where, yes, Montreal got the Olympics, but the way they got them were a little bit nefarious here and there. And sometimes before things change and before there's a real reform in the way you get a World Cup, you don't really have a, ch- a choice right now, actually, Jonathan. To, to, get the world, to get the World Cup, you don't really have a choice by uh, playing the game the way it's been played in the last couple of decades. But the, we've seen the IOC change, and true. I think you're right true, about that. Right. I don't. I'm not sure that Canada is the change agent no. that is needed here. Dwayne, what do you think? Uh, I, I think that you, if it were to come out that Canada were to have gained the 2026 World Cup using completely dirty tactics, we're talking about brown envelopes and all the rest. Then I think there would be a, a massive outrage about that. Um, however, you get into a grayer area when it just comes to sort of. If they were to just sort of stand back and let stuff happen, that that becomes more grayer. I mean, I'm not saying for those that are inside the game that are watching it every day that they're not going to have issues with it, but the general public, when you're talking about that, they're only going to see the end result. And if the end result is is hosting the World Cup and the money that comes with that, or the money, the attention that comes with that, uh, the growth of the game that comes with that, then I think that people would would look the other way. But again, if it were to come out that there were completely nefarious things going on, then, then we're talking about a different subject, I think. Can, cannot Canada grow the game? I don't want to say without traffic sports' help, because obviously it needs a lot of... There's money that needs to get put into the system. It's, it's I, hard. I have, I have, I, and I, I know that 
in a lot of ways, corporate Canada has said, show us some evidence that you're on the right track first before we really put the money into this. But I look at Nike, Gatorade, McDonald's, Anheuser-Busch, the really, really big American companies that have said, we are going to give the U.S. Soccer Federation all of the money it needs to build the player development structure needed to be truly competitive and successful in international soccer. And they did this before the U.S. was there. Where is corporate Canada? No, you're, you're right. And when you talk about big Canadian companies, Jonathan, as Bell, Videotron, you have Molson, course, there is companies that can do the same for Canada. But I think you're right. I think they do want uh, some sort of proof to be able to inject those type of money in a system before they can have uh, a same type of money fund that the U.S. Federation has. And Dwayne, uh, what do you think? Yeah, in terms of the of the corporate side of things, that's the, that's the big question here, and you need some big impetus to get to get them on side, and that's unfortunate. Um, I know when I made the report on the NASL and the CFL working together to to possibly create a Canadian league, I know what's happened since then, and a lot of people have asked me this: is basically it's on hold until they can find a major corporate sponsor to back them in the early days, and they're just simply no one willing to take the risk. And that's the, the story of Canadian so- soccer in a nutshell. No one willing to take the risk. With well, very Canadian shaking my sports, head. too. Canadian I'm, sports as a whole, you can say, Dwayne. I'm, yeah. I'm shaking my head. I really am. Well, because... and it's, it is unfortunate, no doubt. And it's something that frustrates a lot of people. Their, their hope is that, that maybe the Women's World Cup will be successful um, commercially and that, that might encourage uh, some of the partners that they've possible partners that they've spoken to to step forward. That's, that's where things are at with that. Um, they believe they need the impetus of a World Cup bid to to create that league. They shouldn't. They shouldn't. You're right, but and, and that's what they believe. I, I hope that this summer proves the point because you you all three of us know. I mean, I'm going to be up there, you know, and I've I've spent the last number of weeks trying to convince my company to help me travel to the Women's World Cup to to cover the U.S. team and, and Carly Lloyd is from the Philadelphia area who's a big star here, and I've been saying time and again this is going to be the biggest thing of the summer. Uh, and it's going to be you know millions, if not tens of millions, of people in the U.S. watching it, and and Canada, and certainly you know, it's going to be a big deal. And and credit to Bell because they've put it on the table for it to be a big deal. All the games in prime time on the East Coast and all that stuff. It it you know, yeah. It's un- I, I hope yeah. this is it. Oh, it certainly will be. I mean, the the turf issue aside, which we're not going to talk about today. Right. Um, Please. Quickly, I know you're you're set for time. Speaking so of the turf, week. though, you want to talk about the U.S. women? Yeah, I did want to talk about the U.S. women. That's my segue. You beat me to it. Um, was that a case, Jonathan, of just illustrating how good France is, or is it uh, an illustration of uh, the slip of the U.S. program, the the two nil friendly loss? I'm speaking of which. Uh, Both. Yeah, I'll let you go on. Both. Um, I hope that folks who watch that game down here. And have sort of heard some of the conversation and wondering about, you know, what's all these people talking about that the U.S. isn't that good anymore? They're going to go in the World Cup. I hope some of those folks watched that and saw, no, we're not kidding. The players are out there for this U.S. team who can win the World Cup. But they aren't necessarily on the field. And the reason why they aren't on the field, unfortunately, I think, and a lot of others think, is that there are some individual egos who are getting in the way of... Um, the greater team ethic. No, not to change. Just, just, just putting the team first. Mm-hmm. The way France does. You know, the way Germany does. The way the U.S. used to. Is there a divide in the locker room? No. 
I don't think it's dividing the locker room because I'm not sure the right players are in the locker room. Okay. I heard you laughing there, Dwayne. <laughs> it's a divide in the in the community, is what it is. Yeah. If there are voices out there, if you want to find them, that will uh, that will speak for the other 2,000 elite women's players that aren't getting a chance, that would be my position. I, it, it frustrates me because I see. I mean, look. Be honest. What better chance is the U.S. women going to have to win a World Cup than right now in Canada? It's all set up there for them, and they're tripping over their own feet. Because they're not putting the teams out there. They're not putting the best teams out there. They're putting some really great individual players out there, but they're playing in the wrong positions. They are blocking other players from making progress. And a lot of it, whether it's Jill Ellis's tactical acumen or not, or whether, as I, I didn't want to say this, but I might as well, because a lot of people discuss the notion that Abby Wambach has too much power in that locker room. I, 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 don't, I don't know all of the players well enough to know that it's true, but it sure seems when I look at how this team lines up. Uh, I was... I was not necessarily surprised that Ashlyn Harris started in goal instead of Hope Solo because she was out. I was surprised that Abby Wambach did not start in that game. And for better or worse, that is something that needs to happen more often. Yeah, they're trying to play her a little wider, I think, and it's, I don't know whether she's able to adapt. There's a lot of voices out there that suggest that maybe she should be in risk of losing her entire position on, in, on, the, on the team. I don't know if that's going to happen. I'm but. happy for her. to. She's the I, Right now at the stage of her career with the skill set that she has, she's the perfect bringer on at the 60-minute mark, substitute, you know, and, and, and go get a goal against some tired opposition legs. But you look at Alex Morgan and Kristen Press and Sidney LaRue and Megan Rapino and Carly Lloyd and Lauren Holiday and in some of our dreams an actual defensive midfielder in the form of a Julie Johnston or somebody like that who just cannot get on the field. None of the defensive midfielders can get on the field and the U.S. is being overrun because Fair enough. Where's the room for one back? There's, you know, there's better players. All right, fair enough. Jonathan's got to, we'll, we'll let you go on that note, Jonathan. We'll, we'll have a chance to chat again about the CBA maybe in the days ahead. Uh, certainly the women will have lots of chance to talk about that. Uh, to my position, the U.S. women should win every World Cup with the amount of depth of talent you have down there. And uh, it, it's your, only, your own system tripping over itself, as you said. But that's just my outsider perspective on that. It, 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 it'll be, a, if they don't win, in the end of the day, it may well be a column that I write that for the second consecutive World Cup, uh, problems of individual ego overcoming the team ethic have sunk the United States' chances on the biggest soccer stage. And I don't mean consecutive women's World Cups. I mean consecutive World Cups, period. All right, Jonathan Tannenwald, philly.com. Always good to talk to you, Jonathan. Uh, we'll, we'll talk soon. Pleasure, fellas. Good luck digging out all that snow. Thanks, <laughs> Cheers. I love Tom Petty. Tom Petty's a great artist. Uh, I, I saw him in concert about five, ten years ago. That's a big stretch. I think it was about ten years ago now. God, I'm getting old. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, he's great. It's funny thing about a Tom Petty concert, too, is that uh, when I was there, I was kind of in the middle, and there were like 18-year-olds there, and there were like 70-year-olds there. It was like a very diverse crowd because everyone likes Tom Petty, including Sam Smith. But anyway, we digress. Um, Even Kanye West liked Tom Petty. Yeah, there you go. All right. Uh this, you know, we'll end the C. We, we were going to talk a bit about the CBA, Kevin and I, but Jonathan talked a lot about it, so we thought we'd leave it basically except for this. Uh, I'll ask Kevin, and then Kevin can ask me. Um, does the season start on time? I think it will. To be honest, if you asked me the same question a couple of weeks ago, I would have said, no, the players need to strike. They need to take a stand and finally get what's theirs. But I think they're a little, they're a little off. Not that they're... 
the time period, it's going to be the next CBA where they really have all the power in their court, in my opinion. And right now, they just need to just scratch a little bit, just give some a little bit of financial gain and get a little bit of free agency or a type of free agency. And if you get that, I would probably agree with the terms. Yeah, I I like Jonathan's idea that they're going to lose one game, that they will strike just just before in the hours before the first game of the season, uh, and that will cause MLS to go, oh crap, they're serious. We can't lose the uh, fill the bowl game, which is the greatest hashtag ever. But at any rate, <laughs> um, they can't lose that game. So the, I, I I am going with the one game lost. The very first kick of first kick of first kick will be lost, and then the, everyone will panic, and the big soccer will blow up with the you. Know, you know, crazy people. The world has ended, and then they'll solve it like eight hours later, and probably just reschedule the the game lost for later that weekend. Um, but but it, uh, that was one thing that really wasn't interesting that Jonathan said is the timetable, the time period between the last the March third game of CCL for both Montreal and DC United and the beginning of the season in just a couple of days, and it's really a very small window that either the player can do a strike because they both agreed. Uh, apparently, to not strike or lock out during the CCL games. Or for lockout, it's really a small window. So it, it it's almost impossible for a lockout to be there. But like you say, maybe just before the beginning of the season, the players will pull the cord. Yeah, I'm talking hours before. Because once you're in a strike position, which they are right now, um, well, they have to have a strike vote. But they're, they're legally, if they have a strike vote and that's ratified, they can strike at any time. So I suspect we'll see the players have a formalized strike vote about a week or so out. And if that passes, which we assume it is, unless the, the leadership of the union is completely out of touch with what their general members are, are saying, uh, then then I they can strike at any point. They could strike two minutes before kickoff. They could like be out there and warm up and walk off the pitch. Like They're in a legal position at that point, right? Yeah. Um, which is why we talk about the owners in most sports preferring to lock out because then they control the work stoppage. But in this particular case, because the owners, as Jonathan said, are so invested in having the launch of NYCFC and, and Orlando City Soccer Club um, that they, uh, they, they they don't wish to do that. So at it, any rate. It seems just to, just to finish on the CBA for this week, it, it seems like a couple years ago when the CBA was voted, when the TV deal was renegotiated and the deals to get the expansion team, See, like, nobody realized that it was all coming at the same time. And it could really be uh, hurtful for the MLS in some part of the negotiation to have all their eggs in the big basket of investment in the league. And you can't really go against that. So it's weird for me. You never see that happening in any negotiation where one side has so much invested in the season starting than the other. it's really interesting this CBA negotiation, right? Yep, and it'll be uh, be the topic uh, du jour of, uh, of of the days ahead. I, I suspect we'll be having a lot more conversations about the CBA in the the, the two solitudes podcasts that are upcoming. But uh, we'll leave it now. I wanted to to move the conversation to the USL and in particular USL Pro just uh, hours before we brought before we recorded today. Uh, USL Pro made a very uh, breathless announcement that they were rebranding their top league. Uh, so we no longer have to battle in our heads what kind of style we're going to use when we're writing USL Pro. 
because the league always wanted us to write it all in caps and all together, whereas I preferred USL caps because it's an acronym with a with a hyphen and then pro, capital P-R-O. But uh, anyway, that was a different thing, and I'm talking stylistically, so that's, uh, that's for a different podcast. However, it's just USL. Now it's just USL. Um, but more to the point, it also spoke to something that came out a few months ago uh, that USL Pro – or USL I should say now – is essentially applying the USSF to be a Division Two to be uh, verified as a Division Two league. So, what does that mean? What does that mean in particular to Canada? Is the conversation that I thought that I would have at this point. Well, we were uh, talking off air, Dwayne, as having uh, Division Two instead of Division Three in the wording and the naming can open up some possibilities for new teams or different type of leagues for teams that are already here. For many different reasons, but it it would be interesting because the CSA looks at those teams differently than it does a Division Three type of league. Yeah, essentially, for those who don't know, uh, the CSA uh, has a, a, a rule, uh, has a policy that they won't sanction further Division Three teams where there is a, a Division Three Canadian alternative available for them. So, although they well uh, sanction, they did sanction the Calgary Foothills to to begin PDL play this year. Uh, they they ref- don't want to sanction further teams. There was a whole battle with the TFC thing, which isn't completely resolved yet, of uh, whether they're going to allow them to play. And they sort of said they might let them do it for one year, but it'd be for one year only. So it's, it gets complicated if there is a, a Canadian League equivalent. And, and we do know that there are efforts, uh, as we spoke to, to Jonathan about, to, to try and create those leagues, whether they be at the Division Three level or um, what they're calling Division One a in Canada, but which essentially would be Division Two. So whether the CSA would be on board, with Canadian teams moving from the NASL uh, to a USL Pro, sorry, a USL. It's going to take a while for me to stop saying Pro. It, it just comes out by itself. It's so easy. USL Pro, it's Pro. The Pro just keeps coming out. I'm the same way. Yeah. So the USL, which is going to be complicated with my hashtags too, because I had gotten into the hashtag USLP. But anyway, <laughs> um. Whether they're going to do that or not makes it, it asks a lot of questions because they are really committed. They really want that Canadian league, and I believe very solidly, very strongly, sincerely, that the way forward for Canadian soccer is to have a one A league, so to speak, that is to have this NESL uh, affiliation. And you know, that said, and what we were talking about off air, it was specific to Edmonton. Um, when you look at the Canadian dollar crashing, and you look at the amount of money that Edmonton loses already with the travel costs that are associated with that league, does it not make a lot of logical sense for, for FC Edmonton, for the Eddies, to move into a Division II status uh, league in USL where they would be playing against uh, the Whitecaps 2, where they'd be playing against Portland 2, against Seattle 2, uh, maybe the Victoria Highlanders rebrand there, and suddenly your travel costs go from flying to Florida every other weekend, so it seems, to flying to, to BC, flying to, to the Northwest, and, and just having a more logical um, rivals there. You would think it would make sense. You would think. But at the same time, if if the CSA is in bed with Target or with uh, traffic, 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 Target. I, no, Target doesn't exist in Canada anymore, Dwayne. It's no. done. It's liquidating, but anyway. Well, kind uh, of. It's 10% yeah. off. Target, traffic, traffic, target. Anyway, if, they don't, if they're trying to be in bed with, with traffic, is that resistance going to come there if they try and go to USL? Is the CSA going to recognize a USL as a Division II status if the USSF does? These are the questions that will need to be asked. The, the history of 
of lower than MLS soccer in the United States and North America is convoluted. Um, real quickly, for those that don't know the history, I'll just run through it. It started, you know, I'm not going to go back all the way, but I'll go back to maybe 15, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. There used to be the USL used to basically be the the recognized um, Division Two status in North America below MLS, and and that at that time was called the A League. Uh, the Impact, the Whitecaps, and uh, the Toronto Lynx were all involved in that league. Um, there was at one point they rebranded it from A League to, to USL, uh, and convert and sort of uh, associated with the United, USL stands for United Soccer Leagues. Uh, so there's other leagues, PDL, so to speak. So they put it all into one system and, and made it the the professional division of that at the top of that pyramid. Um, there came a division a few years ago, uh, right around I want to say 2008 ish. Uh, the the year might be a little off where the NASL was created from a bunch of disgruntled owners, which included Joey Saputin, which included uh, Bob Leonarduzzi and folks uh, out in the, in the Whitecaps land. Uh, they wanted to have a little more control. They wanted to be a little bit more aggressive in their, um, their branding and their attempts to sort of uh, supersede MLS as a league or at least get up to a closer level to it, whereas there were other owners within that league that weren't as excited about that, were happy to be sort of subservient, I guess, to, to MLS, to, to be clearly a step below. There was a divide in thinking, so they split off. The NASL was formed. They applied for Division Two status. The remaining USL Pro, or it was called USL Pro at this time, I think. No, it wasn't. Sorry, pardon me. It was still USL. After the remaining right after the after. Right, the remaining USL people, they stayed. They decided that they weren't going to meet the standards that the USSF had put in place for the NSL to meet in order to be sanctioned as a Division II league. They felt that they didn't want to do that. There's certain sanctions in terms of uh, stadium size and how they pay their players and et cetera, et cetera, that they had to be met. So they just pulled out and they essentially created what was then called USL Pro and they put it at the Division III level. So now here we are many years later, and that's convoluted, right, to say it out loud. But we're many years later, and they're looking to go up and meet those standards now and compete directly with the NASL. What does that mean? Do they have a merging in mind at some point? Can North America handle two leagues? What will the CSA do with it? A lot of questions, Kevin. And is it beneficial for the sport itself, for the growth of a sport? Or is it going to be uh, a hindering to the growth of the sport? Is it going to help that people are talking about the battle between uh, traffic and uh, some in a way because USL is part owned by the MLS entity itself. So it's going to be really interesting in the upcoming months to see, first of all, the ruling of the USSF on that issue, but to see what that's going to mean on the pitch as well. Yeah, look, the traffic sum battle informs everything to do with North American soccer right now, right from the World Cup bids in 26 to yeah. to what the battle of Division Two is. It, it, it's everything to do with that. And if you look at the NASL and you look at their... It attracts a certain type of person that is anti-SOM, that is anti-MLS, that likes, that wants to see, uh, it's mostly U.S. soccer, that's face facts, that wants to see U.S. soccer structured in a different way, structured in a way that more closely resembles the rest of the world. I'm talking about tinfoil people. I was going to, dare we say it, dare we say it, pro-rel people would be more inclined to like an ASL? So are they going to be okay with – no, I don't think they are at all going to be okay with any affiliation with with a league that has so many teams with a two at the end of their name um, because those teams aren't even hiding the fact that they're below MLS, whereas I think there are still some people in, in NASL, including their commissioner, who believes that they, the possibility exists of them one day – 
uh, being considered to be a Division One league. Um, if you listen to the NASL, uh, Bill Patterson, if you listen to him talk, he never calls NASL a Division II league. He, he refers to it as his own thing, as NASL. It doesn't ever try, try and rank it because that is part of their branding is to attack – not attack. Not really attack, but to to sort of go after equal standing with with MLS, and you know a lot of people will, will laugh at that and say that they never have a chance, but that's certainly how how they think. So to be in a league where there are so many second teams that don't even hide the fact that they're second teams, I don't know how that works exactly, Kevin. But from our perspective, it really comes down to what the CSA would think. And to be honest, since this is relatively new, I haven't really done a lot of digging in this question. My inclination is to suggest that they would be resistant towards allowing a team like Edmonton to switch. But this is where I start to get flexible in my thinking. I would rather see them switch the leagues and remain in place with all of the good work that they're doing with young Canadian players than to see them go away. And I do legitimately worry about what the falling Canadian dollar will mean for FC Edmonton. Yeah, that's another thing that we don't talk about. Now with the dollar being, what, about 80 cents for the dollar, close to that, it's the power of the Canadian teams is really diminished, especially for the teams in the lower league, as in the NASL. Because all the dealings, all the salaries are done in U.S. dollar, and it, it really hurts your bottom line at the end of the day, Dwayne. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we've dealt, dealt with this before uh, in terms of other sports, and we've seen it with the NHL. It's why, I mean, a lot of people look at the, I hate to go with hockey here, but the Quebec Nordiques and the Winnipeg Jets, that's essentially why they, they left town. It wasn't had to do with uh, support in the community. It had to do with the dollar and not being able to afford the same level in, in that Lock, lack of uh, revenue coming in at the same level as the American competition, forcing them out of town. If you're, and that's hockey in Canada. So if it hurt two NHL hockey teams, what does it do to a team like FC Edmonton? That's that's a big concern. I'm a little less concerned about Ottawa because their travel costs aren't as great. Um, I think that their their ownership is a little more stable there. Uh, they have sort of a great affiliation with the CFL team, uh, the better popular, better attendance already. So I'm less concerned with them. Although there is, I think, reason to be concerned about any NASL team. And there's certainly reason to be concerned about. Um, future or more NASL teams coming in. I think Edmonton is the one that we have to to really look at closely. Um, uh, Kevin, I'll give you the last thought on that, and then we'll wrap up. We'll come back, and we'll do a little uh, Canadian MLS review. No, I have to agree with you. The the traffic, the sum, the USL Pro, the it all leads to almost, again, the CBA, and how it all turns around either the player versus the MLS, or some, which is MLS, Soccer United Marketing, versus traffic sports. And it's, I just... I'm, over the years, we talk a lot about that on different shows and reading a lot. And I just want to watch people play soccer, Dwayne. That's the feeling I have at the <laughs> end of the day. You want to watch 11 men in short pants chase a ball? Understandable, really. All right. Uh, you say it take- that way is a lot different, but yeah. It's 22 men, by the way, as well. But at any rate, uh, we'll take a quick break. Come back. We'll do. Uh, we'll wrap some MLS news up. Because you know I'm all about that buzz, buzz, tickets. I'm all about that buzz, buzz, tickets. I'm all about that buzz, buzz, tickets. I'm all about that buzz, 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 buzz. And welcome back. And uh, we're gonna start our MLS review out west today. Uh, I wanted to look up front. Um, the uh, MLS Cup favorite, Vancouver Whitecaps. 
Sorry, guys. I'm just listening to the, the media reports out there and, and drawing conclusions based on them. Uh, at any rate, that's uh, a big jump from fifth place last year. However, uh, one of the big questions was up front, and they one of the things that they've done this offseason is they've looked at Carl Robinson's uh, you know friend group, basically, a guy that he played international soccer with in Robert Earnshaw. He's in on trial right now, and that's caused a lot of excitement um, in Vancouver that he might be the answer, the veteran presence out there. Um during the offseason, there was a lot of speculation that Darren Maddox would go elsewhere. Mm-hmm. He is in camp right now. Some people still wonder whether if Earnshaw can show enough as a trialist, whether that might be the impetus to to move Earnshaw. I ran real quickly, Kevin, and I'll let you jump in after this. I did take, as I'm apt to do, I did have, have a look at the numbers from last season. Uh, Earnshaw played half a season for Chicago where he scored three goals. Um, I looked a bit of beyond the goal lovers and, and saw whether Maddox or Earnshaw was producing more up front. Now, keeping in mind with caveat that Earnshaw was only there for half a year and maybe the numbers change a bit if he's there for a full season. Uh, the thing, you know, I'd like to use that shots plus key passes per 90 uh, stat. Uh, they both had the exact same numbers at 2.2 shots and key passes per 90. Uh, is Earnshaw the, the solution? I don't know. Uh, I got a question, a guy like that, and I think we touched on this before. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many teams has he played for, and what does that mean? Uh, does it mean something? And if it does, what it does mean? Yeah, I agree with you. Players that are always changing teams sometimes can... The ETH beers of the world, so players like this that always keep changing team every couple of years, seem they can never settle in somewhere else. And that has to say something either about the player or about the personality he brings to the locker room, one or the other, right? Yeah, and uh, I'm not going to go anything other than to put it out there. There was a famous uh, Canadian international by the name of Ali Gerba that switched teams an awful lot for a guy that scored a lot. And those that are inside the Canadian soccer scene know have a suspicion on why that is, and we know that you wouldn't want him on your team. So I'll leave it at that because we're not getting sued today. Um, however, uh, I'd show us the same thing by any means. I have no idea on that, but I do question whether he just maybe doesn't produce at the level uh, that people might think. Now, that said... Look, he, he might be the example, the outlier of a guy that even though his, his raw stats aren't where you'd think they would be, that does just have a nose for goal. There are players like that out there that can't be statistically defined, and that could be Robert Earnshaw. I, I get it's not it's a low-risk move by Carl Robinson to bring him in on trial. It's a guy that he knows, um, so I applaud that. Uh, I think it's, it's interesting that Maddox is back, that they didn't move him. That could be that uh, he just hasn't shown enough to get the type of value in return that the Whitecaps yeah. wanted. Uh, he has a lot to prove, and I think certainly that if Maddox isn't, if he does start the season with the Whitecaps and he's not producing again, he's causing the same sort of distractions that he has in the past. That I suspect that that he may not be long for the West Coast. Maddox is one of the last left of his year as well from the Super Draft. Right? If you're looking at it from 2011, if I'm not mistaken, and he's one of the last Mohicans of that draft. And I wouldn't be surprised if he's not in the league at the end of the season. To be honest. Yeah, uh, I don't know. He's a guy that has a lot of athleticism, but he's and he can score some spectacular goals. I was there that day that he like pretty much jumped eight feet in the air to get his head on the ball, yeah. uh, and then ran too. then ran directly in front of the south side of uh, of the TFC supporters group and was taunting us. And then two seconds later, uh, uh, TFC scored the winning goal against the Whitecaps in one of the the only highlights of that season. But yeah, anyway. the, but there's a basic rule, Dwayne, that I think you'll agree with me. When you have somebody that was on the cusp of making the team or being released, is does what do you have? Is it teachable or does it have something that you can't teach but you can build upon? 
what he has right now is more athleticism than anything else. And that, you can transfer that to somebody else with the proper training, nutrition, and lifestyle. Which you can't say for the things that he's lacking, and that is uh, discipline, vision, uh, vision, but more creativity as a whole, just understanding of the game on the pitch. And that cannot be teached. And you need somebody that has that to take his place. And if, I don't know if Earnshaw is the case, but Earnshaw do have, does have some of those things that we're saying that Maddox don't. So it'll be interesting. Yeah. And a lot of people at West, they talk about Earnshaw as being a veteran presence that they need in that dressing room, that they are a bit younger up front to have a, an older guy up front that, that's able to um, guide and to lead. He might even be good for a guy like their Maddox. So that's the thinking. I think in terms of, what happens to Maddox? I, I suspect that the most likely destination, if the Whitecaps to, do choose to move him, uh, would be a trade within MLS. I think he has enough athleticism. There would be others that would say, you know, if we put him in our system, we can fix him, which is a common thing that that every you know tactical person everywhere thinks that they can take that raw rock and make it a diamond, right? So we'll we'll see. All right, um, let's move on and talk a bit about uh, your neck of the woods. Uh, hey. I wanted to start with the Di Natale. We talked about that uh, last week uh, and whether he would be coming to MLS. There was a rumor that he was going to come for $8 million a year. It wasn't clear whether it was a year or over the sense of the contract, but it was a lot of money. And um, you remember what I said last week, Dwayne? I said that, in my opinion, Di Natale is just saying basically anything just to get attention and just to help himself get a better contract somewhere else. And I think I'm not the only one who said that last week. Yeah, the owner of your club did. Joey Saputo <laughs> came out right, outright and said, uh, yeah, he's just making that up. <laughs> and and it was like he was kind of pissed about it too because he was like, we know they're talking about us. <laughs> like, yeah. Come on. He, there's a MLS clubs. Who, who, who goes after old Italians? It's hey, the impact. Hello. <laughs> yeah. Hello. <Right> hello. <laughs> there we go. Um yeah, so Joyce Puto came out and outright said that no, the player was making that up, trying to inflate his value, and was using MLS as leverage, not as any sort of real attractiveness to go there. Um, what does that mean, though? Like, is that good for Joyce? I'll ask you that. I, we kind of laugh at it, but is it a good thing for him to be outright that aggressive, saying, you know, screw off, try and quit trying to use us? Um, well, is that it's showing that spine? Does that help or does that hurt? I, I think on this case, it does help because. Let's get this straight. I'm tired of all those, not necessarily old players, but players just using MLS as leverage to get a better payday in China. I, I'm tired of the Del Pieros, the Di Natale, the uh, Matarazzi, whatever their name is. Uh, all that clique of players are just using the name of MLS without even knowing what it is. Just using that three letters to get a better payday somewhere else. Why don't you do make your due diligence and not just... Use anybody to get a better contract. Just go somewhere else. Get your money. Just leave MLS alone. We're trying to build something here with a new perception. And the product that will be on the field this year is really different than it was in the last couple of years. And I want people to stop thinking that it's a retirement league. And just the, those comments by old players give the perception of the Eurosnob or the people that don't have a close eye on the MLS side of things. It gives the perception that it's still a retirement league. It's not. It's not anymore. And quit saying that it is. Fair enough. Uh, Kevin, you had a big show in Off the Woodworks this week that uh, we'll, we'll make sure we'll get the link out if you want to hear more Impact Talk. But beyond that... Uh, it's more of a rant, too. Uh, if you thought I was ranting the last couple of seconds, all about that buzz. Last week, Joey Saputo came out saying that he's not happy with the amount of tickets sold. The, the city doesn't have the coverage of the team, that the team is not considered a top-tier level team. 
And, and I just finished the podcast by saying this phrase that probably resumes what a lot of fans were thinking. A lot of people were thinking to be considered a top tier, almost same level as the Canadians of Montreal type of club. Well, you need to start by acting like one. Blaine. Fair enough. All right. We'll make sure we get the link out for the one to hear more of Kevin talking about the impact there. Um, that said, you know, we talked about 17,000 seats for uh, the CCL game. Uh, do you think how, – how high, how high do you think they'll push it to? Do you think they'll get to 25 or something like that? I wouldn't be surprised if it gets to 30. Uh, Montreal is known to be a late crowd to get behind a product in the last couple of days, get behind a game in the last couple – three, four days before a game if the conditions are there. And I think it's going to happen maybe – I predict between twenty-seven and 30000 in the big O. And if it's done properly, it could be done well. Over the years, people have saying that big O is always empty. But nobody ever did anything to change the look of that. If you look at Achievers USA when they had like a barely an empty stadium, but they covered the seats and did something. If Montreal really want to get behind their team, just close the upper bowl, put some IMFC TFOs on the seats, let it there the whole game, and have everybody congregated together in the lower bowl there's something you could do nice people need to stop complaining about the big go and just maybe do something about it as well exactly yeah i i still uh 50 50 whether i'm going to come up for that one uh i'm coming up may 6 for sure uh to watch the uh the voyager's cups game uh the the second leg there or the first leg there pardon me because uh toronto had the finished above montreal last year so they have the home advantage um at any rate uh, so that that happens there and uh if you want to you know, we didn't talk about the Voyager's Cup schedule because what really are you going to talk about? But uh, that uh, that's out there if you want to find it. Um, let's move to Toronto. I don't want to talk about this, but I'm going to have to because it's all the rage. And I well, do before be- let's just say, did you see the goal Michael Bradley did for the U.S.? Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah, complete Damn. luck. Complete luck. But that's, that's not yes. get ourselves. Um, but anyway, you know, it's still nice. Scored directly from a corner. There's lots of vines and videos out there if you want to find it. Uh, speaking of Michael Bradley. Uh, He's apparently the captain, and apparently this matters. Uh, this is all the rage, and I use the term rage purposely in, in TFC Twitter right now because people are very angry that – and I was pounding my desk there for effect if you didn't catch that. They're very angry uh, that uh, Stephen Caldwell has been, quote-unquote, stripped of the, of the captaincy, and this is supposedly unprofessional and all that. I just – look, I agree on one level that – why the hell do they need to create this? Like Michael Bradley, assumedly, is going to be here for a few more years. Why do you need to rush it? Just let Caldwell have his last damn year so we're not talking about this crap. But at the same time, if Stephen Caldwell is the leader that we're all saying he is, then he's going to buck it up and get on with it and not going to cause a controversy. I just don't think this is as big a deal as some people are making out. Um, and if he is causing room problems over the fact that he's not wearing a piece of cloth, that he's going to wear half the season anyway when Bradley's playing at the Gold Cup, then – you know, what kind of leader was he? That's my question, and that's the only thing I have to say about that. This clearly is Michael Bradley's team. It has been all year. Uh, we talked at length about the about the intelligence of having him have as much influence with upper management as he appears to do. Um, we talked, and I have spoken to and written about how I'm a little bit reluctant to, to buy into that as being a good idea full in. But at the same time, at this point point in the offseason, I think making this a controversy is 
emphasis on the making it. You're making it a, comp- a controversy. There's nothing there right there. Um, we have a little bit of clip of, of uh, Stephen Caldwell talking about that that I sent to Kevin earlier today. So we'll, maybe we'll tag that on uh, so you can hear it with your own ears. But uh, I don't really think there's much more to talk about to you, Kevin. No, I think it's just a case of management. They decided that it's going to be Bradley's team. They got Altador. They got Jovinko that's going to be complementary to Bradley's play. They got all those pieces in play that points to Michael Bradley as he's the anointed one. And they just give him the armband to officialize it. Uh, to just to not just tell Bradley, not just the fan, but to tell the whole world that, yes, he's the man that the team is built around. And I think that's just why he's getting the armband. All right, here's a 20-second clip of uh, Stephen Caldwell talking about uh, what, what it would feel like for him to lose the, the captaincy uh, that uh, we'll run right now, and then we'll come back and we'll wrap things up. Was prepared for the Greg? physical challenges. Sorry, Greg was uh, a bit noncommittal when we asked him who would serve as captain this year. Um, what would be your reaction if he decided to give the captain's arm to someone else? Well, I'd be disappointed. I love being captain of this football club. I've... Uh, I've captained every team I've played for since I was 15, so it's something that I, I relish, I enjoy, and I think I'm quite good at it. So it's um, it's it's a great honour to be captain of any any club. Uh, don't treat it lightly. I love being captain of Toronto, so I, I hope to stay that. And uh, just for those that don't know, that was John Molinaro's voice to start that clip from Sportsnet. He was the reporter that asked the question. Uh, the the sound itself is from uh, TorontoFC.ca. Uh, so thanks, for, thanks for that. Uh, we didn't ask for it, but you know, thanks anyway. <laughs> I think that's public domain. Um, it is. I don't know, Kevin. What, what, did, you, did you hear Malice there? Do you think that he's going to make a big deal over that? No, but what I heard is that the guy's been the captain since every team since he's fifteen. Why did you take it away from him? He's like he's good at it. Let the guy be the captain. Which is kind of what I said. Like I mean, on, I, if I were Greg Vanny, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have taken it. Like what the hell's the rush? But at the same time, whatever. It's whatever. They're still going to both argue with the referees. It's not like that's going to change. So whatever. Anyway. All right. Um, it's been a long show. Uh, thanks again to Jonathan for joining us. Uh, booked him this morning. So he did that on short notice. Had a couple other hits that he had to do in between ours. So we thank him for that. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow for our one-year anniversary show on the Five Rings podcast. Hope you can uh, take some time to come back if you haven't listened to us in a while and listen to that one. In the meantime, Kevin, I'll let you say goodbye for this one. If you want to hear to the first show me and Dwayne ever did together exactly one year ago to the day, I just reposted it on the Five Rings podcast. I upgraded the audio, but it's uh, interesting to see the difference of uh, chemistry that was on the first show compared to, the, what, 200 shows later in today. So uh, have a listen to this, and until next time, have a great soccer, guys.